Hi, and welcome back to our series of conversations between Hapal Bra and Caleb Morpin. And today we're going to be talking about the question of war and peace. Now, the question of war uh, is obviously one which is which is ever present when we live in the current system. Um, you know, we had we saw in the last century two global conflagrations that absorbed huge uh, numbers of men and material and resources and, and everything. And, you know, industrial production of death has really been a feature of imperialism since it came on the scene. Um, and the question of how we put an end to war and what the socialist approach to war is under the conditions of capitalism and then in conditions of capitalist encirclement is, of course, one of the kind of crucial cornerstones of, uh, of our understanding of the present world and, and how, we, how we correctly orient ourselves in the struggle for socialism. So uh, I'm going to start by asking Hapal to talk to us a little, about, a little bit about Lenin, his approach toward the, the new understanding he gave to the working class movement, the socialist movement, on war in the era of imperialism, and how that understanding has been kind of distorted in various ways since he gave us his analysis. Well, the Leninist viewpoint is that the modern that modern war is a product of imperialism, and it's no coincidence that the emergence of monopoly happens to take place at the same time as the attempts to partition and repartition the world, and. War is not something uh, that just comes out of nowhere. War is a product of, of, of the system. And according to Leninist teaching, war is a continuation of policy only by forcible uh, means. And if you want to look at the war, do not ever discuss who attacked whom first. The basic question to be asked, which is often forgotten, not only by uh, the, the bourgeois, intellectuals, but also by some left-wing intellectuals, is the question of the class character of the war. Exactly who are the classes who are waging the war? What is the policy they do prior to the war? And what is the policy that they are pursuing during the war? And what exactly is the policy and the uh, outcomes that they expect to see after the end, end of the war? And, and war is not something which is just episodic. It's not something which is an aberration. It is, as Lenin said, the epitome of politics, i.e. war is built into the, into the system. It takes place because of the contradictions within, within capitalism. And the emergence of monopoly has only exacerbated these contradictions because all the monopolist powers within each country, the monopolies want to control the whole economy and this is taken up by the political representatives of these monopolies and on a world scale they want to dominate imperialism seeks domination it does not seek freedom it doesn't seek liberty even if imperialists wage these wars on the pretext of democracy on the pretext of human rights stopping ethnic cleansing and uh, uh, holocausts etc in fact what they are actually doing as Jyoti, you rightly said in your opening words, is producing wars on, which kill people on an ind industrial scale. After each war, we are told this was the last one. It will not happen again, never again. And yet within five years of the end of the Second World War, Americans were involved in a genocidal war against the people of people of Korea, where they killed four million people over a period, period, of, period of three three years. When that war ended and America did not win that war, it was the first time that America did not win a war in which it took, took part. It was said they'd learned the lesson then they won't do it again. And then five years later, they start the same sort of thing in Vietnam, which carried on till mid-70s. Mid, mid, mid so war is something that is built in, into capitalism. It's a continuation of, 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 of their, their policy. If you want to see, uh, if you want to actually find out what the war is about, then you must look at the class character of the parties that, 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 are, that are fighting. We're not pacifists. We're not against war. There are wars we support. There are wars we do not support. We come to that point uh, later, later on separately. And so the question of war 
uh, is succinctly the Leninist position is what I put forward. And the Leninist position is confirmed by life. That's precisely what has happened over the last 120 years since the emergence, emergence of imperialism. The last time that the big powers were able to divide the world peacefully was at the Berlin Con Conference in, I believe it was 1884, where the European powers sat around a, map, around a table with a big map and they drew lines as to who will get what. And these lines were drawn up on the basis of the existing relative power of the parties attending that, that conference. The biggest thieves, Britain and France, got the most. Then Germany got a bit, and this horrible Belgian king, Leopold, was given the whole of Congo. And you know the bloodthirsty history of, of, of Congo, uh, how many millions they killed during their period of colonialism, and how many millions have been killed since then by Anglo-American and Belgian, Belgian imperialism in, 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 in that, that, that country. So that, that, the, the, the war does not end just because people, people who wish, wish, wish to put an end to that war. And what we have to do is think of the ways in which wars can be stopped. This is something we can discuss that. But what is important to understand is that not only the bourgeois pacifists, but leftists also actually distort the question of war. The petty bourgeois, especially of the democratic variety, and that begins with the First World War, when social democracy, which used to be up to then, um, built in the mold of Marxism, actually deserted Marxism and joined the bourgeoisie of their own countries to fight for the defense of their own fatherlands, i.e. for their own bourgeoisie. and encouraged the workers and incited the workers to kill their class brethren and slaughter them across across the, 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 the frontiers. There are a number of distortions that the opportunists, principally people like Bernstein and Kautsky, but Kautsky was the chief theoretician who put forward these various wrong points. If I can very quickly just mention them without explaining every one of them, they pretty fight imperialism. Imperialism ceased to be the source of war. It ceased to be the source of the misery of the people of the world. It was pretty fine. They helped imperialism cover up the dangers of war um, by basically uh, say, say, saying that, you know, there is no inevitability of war. You know, war can be prevented by wise people who had the governments of various imperialist countries um, this is something that the Khrushchevites took over um, when revisionism became triumphant in the, in, the, in, the, in the Soviet Union. They also intimidated people that a war would destroy humankind. It would actually destroy civilization. And there would be nothing left. At the end of the war, as Kautsky said, you know, there would be nothing but smoldering ashes. And heaps of millions of, 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 of dead people, corpses. And the absurd, they, they propagated the absurd theory that world peace can be safeguarded and the equality of nations achieved through disarmament. You know, there have been disarmament schemes all over the place. There is a diversion. We are not against disarmament. We have, for example, on the question of nuclear weapons, complete universal nuclear disarmament without exception and very, very viable. But it's not going to happen because weapons are the chief source of imperialist intimida intimidation. They spread the fallacy, fallacy that money saved from nuclear weapons and general armaments can be used for the well-being of the people. As Lenin said, capitalism wouldn't be capitalism if it would use all the resources available to modern society for the benefit and well-being of the people. Um, they also at that time glorified the League of Nations, which was actually a tool of imperialism. It didn't prevent any aggression. It didn't prevent Mussolini and Hitler um, and, 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 uh, and many of these countries from going ahead with, the, with their aggressive policies. And they spread the illusion that reliance can be placed on US imperialism. Somehow it got a very easy ride. US imperialism was always pretty fine. And trade union leaders after the First World War sent delegations to America to learn 
how American capitalism was doing so well and how it could do well in the world and how what they could learn and bring forward those less, lessons to Britain. And they also made no distinction between any kind of wars. There were no just wars. There were no unjust wars. War is a war. And anybody who disagrees with that, damned he, he be. So these were the various uh, distortions that the revisionists, Trotsky, uh, uh, etc., were put forward. And then they were taken over by Khrushchev, but perhaps you can come to it later on so that I don't take too much of your time. Thanks, Rapal. Caleb. Well, I thought it might be good to pull up some quotations uh, from Vladimir Lenin on this topic. Um, I, you know, Lenin said, uh, people always have been the foolish victims of deception and self-deception in politics, and they always will be until they have learned to seek out the interests of some class or other behind all moral, religious, political, and social phrases, declarations, and promises. Uh, and that is... A, quote that I come back to quite a bit because we hear these hollow words from our political leaders, you know, urging us to support them and and telling us that they're waging wars to stop a genocide or rescue some people from a tyrant or whatever. And until we learn to see the class content behind their words and not just, you know, take them at their face value. Uh, you know, I mean, I think about, you know, at the time slavery was going on, that the, you know, the, the, the slave system was going on in the United States. They didn't say, oh, we're going to, to you know, Africa to exploit these people and, and take them back to the United States to exploit their free labor and make lots of profits from it. No, they were civilizing them and giving them a chance at Christianity and, and helping them, helping them become more, more, it was, it was a great noble task, they said, what they were doing. Um, and that's how they always justify it. Um, and that, you know, we live in an age where propaganda and media deception is very important. One thing that I think uh, is is really missing nowadays is an understanding of revolutionary defeatism. We welcome the defeat of our own ruling class. Uh, you know, when, when the U.S. imperialists go to war around the world, we want them to be defeated. Now, there's obviously exceptions like the Second World War. But for the most part, you know, we want the U.S. imperialists to be defeated around the world. And, you know, because we're struggling against the imperialist state and the big monopolies and the big banks that run the United States. And so we welcome their defeat. And any defeat for them is a victory for the American working class. Uh, and any victory they have, if they succeed in overthrowing a government or, or uh, you know, establishing, you know, establishing, you know, control over a, over a market, beating down some country that's broken free from their grip, uh, that's a defeat for us. Um, and this is called revolutionary defeatism. And it's been largely rolled back. People don't seem to have this kind of understanding. And, um, you know, during when the USA invaded Iraq, um, you know, I mean, it was very clear if you were a Marxist, you had to support the Iraqi people in their fight for national liberation and their rejection of the occupation of, of the U.S. imperialists. But at the time, I remember there was a lot of talk of, you know, we had, you know, some communist groups in the United States were talking about, they said, well, it's two outmoded systems. There's the Islamo-fascism of the Iraqis, and then there's the Christian fascism of the American imperialists, and we're against both. We're for communism. And you started to hear this line. This started to be the line you started to hear. Well, you know, we're against the, you know, in Ukraine, we're against the Russian imperialists, and we're against the, the American and, and NATO imperialists. We're against both of them. Well, no, you should be a revolutionary defeatist, right? You you welcome the defeat of your own bourgeoisie, right? If you are a revolutionary in an imperialist country, it is your responsibility to advocate the defeat uh, of your own bourgeoisie as, as a way of advancing the revolutionary struggle of your own working class. Uh, and, you know, I mean, I don't think Russia is an imperialist country, and I'm sure that's, that's the kind of thing we can talk about on here. But even if it was, we should still welcome the defeat of our own imperialists. Uh, it's just a pretty basic thing. And that the Bolshevik revolution was largely successful because the Bolsheviks practiced revolutionary defeatism. They welcomed the defeat uh, of Russia, uh, and, and they were organizing the workers to turn their guns around and uh, and to you know to fight the main enemy which is at home and I mean these are the principles uh, upon which revolutionary Marxism has always operated so um, I think it's really important that we talk about them because this is really fundamental um, and that uh, you know when you talk about Kautsky and Bernstein and others that that social democracy you know the Marxist movement of Western Europe became its opposite it it had originated with Marx and Engels as a revolutionary movement of the workers but with the advent of imperialism, 
Uh, we saw social democracy turn into a mechanism for stabilizing the Western imperialist countries, creating more of a welfare state, uh, facilitating the labor bureaucracy and, and, and such, and, and enabling the imperialists to spread their tentacles all around the world. Um, and that social democracy, uh, it, 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 was, it was rooted in imperialism and the rise of the aristocracy of labor and the division of the working class. And then I'll point you to another quotation. Uh, imperialism and the split in socialism is one of Lenin's most important essays. And I, I urge people to read Imperialism and the Split in Socialism. Um, and that's the, the essay where Lenin kind of lays out how it was that all these Marxist parties in Europe were able to become um, were able to become their opposite, how they were able to end up selling out and supporting World War I. Um, you know, uh, and, you know, this essay is very, very important. But the quote from this essay um, that I continue to get back to um, you know, it's, it's, I've read it many times. Um, I'm just going to pull up the quotation here. Well, actually, maybe we'll read, I'll read the quotation later, but imperialism and the split in socialism, I think is a, is a, is a, an essay I really recommend. So yeah, maybe I'll uh, come back to me. I'll give the quotation here in a second. I, I was going to pull it up, but then I had an issue there. So there you no go. Problem. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, you know, you, you guys have brought up some really, really important points there. So, you know, obviously what Hapal was talking about, how Lenin not only defined the characteristics of this present era, the era of capitalist imperialism, but he also, you know, because of his work as the foremost theoretician of Marxism in the era of imperialism and at the front of a movement that was, you know, going through the First World War, and making revolution at the same time, you know, he left us analysis, as you're talking about Caleb there, as Paul was saying, of the relationship between imperialism and war. What is war in the modern era? You know, it's, it's very easy. You know, it's like people talk about the empire when they talk about American imperialism, as if the American empire, US imperialism of today is analogous to, you know, the Roman Empire or other empires of the past. And, and they want to obliterate this distinction between, you know, uh, the concept of empire in different stages of human development. And of course, they're not the same thing. And, and uh, capitalist monopoly imperialism is a different beast entirely driven by totally different motivations and producing different effects in the world than other empires. So it doesn't help us to just say empire is bad and not really understand what capitalist imperialism is. And they do the same uh, thing with war. They do, oh, war isn't very nice or oh, humans have always had wars. And either way, they don't look at the modern features of war. But what Lenin did was show us what impels war and how we should understand it as revolutionaries, as fighters for socialism. And of course, as socialists, we're against war. We're for people. We're for the preservation and the uh, what's the uplift of people's lives, right? We want people to survive and have good lives. But we have to get from where we are to where we're going. We have to understand and be realistic about what that means, right? There is a class struggle. It's a war happening all the time between the classes, whether you recognize it or not, it's going on. People are dying constantly of things they shouldn't be dying of because of the class war, right? There are also wars between nations, and sometimes those nations are two you know, imperialist powers fighting it out over loot. Sometimes those wars are wars where an imperialist power is trying to crush uh, an, an independent nation uh, or state or, or, or region or whatever it might be. And you know, we have to look at those wars differently. They mean different things to the working class that is struggling for socialism. And so this distinction between a just and an unjust war and sides that the working class should or shouldn't support because it helps either strengthens or weakens our struggle for socialism, right? It's always very, Lenin's very pragmatic, you know? Yes, there is a moral side to the question, but it's socialist morality. It's not abstract morality of like good or bad, but the socialist morality of, of what is going to help us get towards socialism, what is good for the masses of the people and what's bad for them, what's going to keep this bloodthirsty, you know, killing on an industrial scale system going. Um, it's, that's our morality, right? Not an abstract good or bad, nice or horrible, people die, people don't die. People are dying all the time in this system. We need to put an end to it. Um, understanding wars is really, really important. And one of the things, one of the ways that our rulers are, are brilliant at confusing us about 
what's going on in any particular war, like they do with so many things, is they decontextualize. The exact opposite of what Lenin taught us. Lenin taught us, look at the context, look at the policy the sides were pursuing, look at the classes uh, that are waging the war, all those things Rapal talked about earlier. What is this a continuation of and where is it leading? Um, which forces will benefit from which outcome? You know, these are really, really important questions for the working class. We want our movement to win. We need to maximize the forces on the side that is against imperialism, you know, and do everything we can to undermine the strength and unity of the imperialist side. So absolutely, as you said, Caleb, that need for, for revolutionary defeatism in our own country to be able to say, as our comrades did during the Iraq war, victory to the resistance. We actually had that as a slogan and were vilified in the anti-war movement for that because, you know, it's going to upset some people. Well, of course, you know, I mean, in theory, all right, but in practice, we must never say something like that. Hmm. No, we do have to say that. We do have to help our working class to make common cause with those who are being targeted by our own class enemies. As you said, Caleb, that is a victory for us. If they win, that's also a victory for us because our enemy got defeated, got weakened. And those things are so, so important. So that thing about the, the context uh, and the class content, you know, that's the job of socialists to bring that to people because the, the bourgeoisie always, always, always rips it away and tries to kind of obfuscate and, and presents a situation as if it just popped out of nowhere. Uh, and it's a, it's a brilliant trick, but you can only play it on people who don't know anything, you know, and our job is to is to educate workers and help them educate themselves so that trick doesn't work on them anymore. That's a really important goal of our propaganda, I think. Rapal. To carry on from where you left off to the end, also to connect with the earlier point I made that the Berlin Conference was the last time that imperialists were peacefully able to, uh, to divide the world. Because at that time, the world had not been completely divided um, uh, because there were still unoccupied countries, not in the sense that there were no local people living there, but none of them were occupied by the, by the great and good, by the, by the powerful countries in the world. But once that had been done, once the world had been completely partitioned, what could happen in future was only repartition. It could not, they could not find any, any, any more space anywhere else. The world could be repartitioned. Now, the partitioning originally took place according to the relative economic and military might of the powers that were represented at the time of partitioning. But of course, this power undergoes constant changes. Germany, which in 1884 was not that powerful, within 20 years became a very powerful country. Its economic development, not the level of development, because all the imperialist countries probably have the same level of development, but its economic development leapt ahead of other countries, France and Britain, but principally Britain, which was the chief uh, colonialist power, which had the control of the world market. Once that had changed, the Germans wanted repartitioning to get their fair share of the loot, fair share of the slaves. But the problem, as Lenin rightly puts it, is that Germany had come late to the banqueting table when all the seats had been occupied. Now, if we are at a meeting and one of us is late and there are no chairs, we'll politely stand up and say, okay, Caleb, it's your turn. We've been sitting here for a long time and come sit down. But that's not how it happened in the world of imperialism. To get a seat, you've got to kick somebody off their seat. Now, the old imperialist bar say it's theirs. It's their right to have it. The new imperialists, the young robbers, very strong ones, say, well, that was then, but it's not now. You're divide, depriving us of our fair share. Would you please get off? Since they can't settle it by peaceful means, it comes to fisticuffs. And in the world of capitalism, it can only happen by use of force. Hence, all the wars that have been waged, world wars one and two, as well as smaller wars that have taken place are the result of, 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 of the, that, that thing. So war is, to that extent, a continuation of, of, of the policy. So once uh, the partition has taken place, there can only be repartition. And that's precisely what leads to the Leninist thesis. 
war is inevitable under the conditions of imperialism. Modern war is not the same as old empires. That's why I hate it when not only petty bourgeois, ordinary people, but some very progressive countries use the word empire. I won't na name them. It just makes no sense. It actually confuses the people. Modern war is different from other wars because it is the product of monopoly. Earlier wars were not products of monopoly. It's a completely different ball game when a war is produced by monopoly capitalism, where internally as well as externally, in their internal policy as well as external policies, both of which are related, monopoly capitalism, finance capital, does not seek anything other than domination. They seek domination of their home industry and they seek domination all over the world. And their political representatives do exactly the same. And the monopolies at home are backed by the imperialist politicians who are in, in, in power. And that's really what, what, what leads lead, 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 lead to war. It's not something that has just happened as a, as a, as a matter of aberration. That's why none are so dangerous who say peace can be achieved while imperialism lasts. Where Lenin has said that, you know, what we learn from I mean, the wars is, you know, that as long as imperialism lasts, the whole idea of this being the last war is a fairy tale and a fa fable. Or as, St as Stalin put it, this world, uh, the war cannot be abolished unless you abolish imperialism in his economic problems uh, of socialism in the, in the USSR. Or Lenin said that this bloodthirsty system can only be brought to an end with the Bolshevik revolution and Bolshevik struggle. There is no other way. Any other thing is a deception of the, of the masses. Thanks, Rupal. Before I come to you, Caleb, for that quote again and your thoughts on those uh, points Rupal was raising, I just wanted to uh, underline that point uh, that you brought up there, Rupal, about the peace movement and this trick that's played on the workers by the kind of pacifists of the peace movement and the liberals, you know, the petty bourgeois who, who want us to believe there's a way of persuading the system out of being warlike. Uh, and, you know, if you read Lenin and, and, and all of the work that came from that period, from the First World War, uh, all the, the, the great Marxist analysis that was made of war and imperialism during that period, it's absolutely irrefutable. And, and history has proved it over and over and over again, as Paul said earlier, that war is absolutely at the central, it's at the heart, the epitome of how this system behaves. It is a result of the logic of the system of production for profit that has achieved a certain stage. And as Rapal says, you know, capital needs to expand. Monopoly capital, you know, has monopolized at home. It's trying to, it, it has to keep finding more profit, more profit, more profit. How does it do that? How does monopoly capital that's got to a certain stage keep expanding its ability to, to, to make profits and, and, and conquer markets and all the rest of it? It's only through war. It's the competition for the markets, for the control of the raw materials uh, and, and all the rest of it. So this is, again, it's the job of socialists to bring this understanding to the anti-war movement because it doesn't have it. It doesn't have that without without Marxists, without Marxists coming to the anti-war movement and helping people to understand that ultimately the only way to end war is to end capitalism. Um, nobody else is going to explain that to people and they're going to carry on this cycle of trying, trying, trying to persuade. You know, reformers have been trying to persuade the capitalists out of acting like capitalists, out of acting on behalf of their capital for, you know, for as long as there's been capitalism. You know, it's it's been going on and on and on and it has never, ever worked. And, you know, it's only the socialists that can explain to the working class why it is that that doesn't work. Caleb. Well, the quotation, I'll just read it here, um, you know, because it's 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 a really important in, in light of what we're talking about. But Lenin wrote in Imperialism and the Split in Socialism, neither we nor anyone else can calculate precisely what portion of the proletariat is following or will follow the social chauvinists and opportunists. This will be revealed only by the struggle and it will definitely be decided only by the socialist revolution. But we know for certain that defenders of the fatherland in the imperialist war 
represent only a minority. And it is therefore our duty, if we wish to remain socialists, to go lower and deeper to the real masses. And this is the whole meaning of the purport of the struggle against opportunism. By exposing the fact that opportunists and social chauvinists are in reality betraying and selling the interests of the masses, they are defending the temporary privileges of a minority of workers, that they are vehicles of bourgeois ideas and influence, and they are really agents of the bourgeoisie, we teach the masses to appreciate their true interests and to fight for socialism and for the revolution through all the long and painful vicissitudes of imperialist war and imperialist armistices. And that part about going lower and deeper to the real masses, uh, you know, I, I continue to quote that uh, to people in the United States because we have a really unique situation right now in, in America politically. I don't know how it is in Britain. Maybe it's similar. Maybe it's different. I'm not as familiar. But at this point, the American people are against these wars. Poll after poll after poll shows 60, 70, sometimes 80 percent of the public doesn't want more U.S. troops deployed around the world. It doesn't want military interventions. So there's a huge, huge, overwhelming opposition to more U.S. military interventions, largely um, because it's affecting the population. I mean, people are seeing the the results of this. I mean, in terms of, of the PTSD, I mean, there's a, a friend of mine uh, who works at a, a truck driving school and uh, there's a, you know, a lot of guys who, you know, were driving trucks in Afghanistan or driving trucks in Iraq. Uh, and they come home and he just, his job is to help certify them to be truck drivers in the United States. And the amount of PTSD these guys have, you know, the amount of, the amount of emotional, you know, you know, I mean, these guys are just psychologically damaged from the fear of driving down the road with the fear of being blown up or seeing the car, or the truck in front of you blown up. And, and, you know, the amount of people who have a relative with a missing arm or a missing leg, I mean, people don't want these wars. And if you look at the economy of the United States, it's very clear that we're not spending money on jobs and schools and healthcare. I mean, the roads are falling apart. I mean, the, the water is not being purified. It's just common sense. The American people are against these wars. So overwhelmingly, the people are against these wars. But the anti-war movement is smaller and more isolated than ever. Why is this happening? This is happening because the anti-war movement has attached itself to social democracy and attached itself to the left. And the left is pro-war. I mean, it, and, and it's it's shocking to me. But, I mean, we have a situation where the public is overwhelmingly against the wars. But because of the fact that, that, uh, that, that, that you know, the anti-war coalitions and the anti-war groups are so determined to be sol foot soldiers of the Democratic Party and defend the Democratic Party and the political status quo in America from Donald Trump, um, you know, because of that, uh, you know, the anti-war movement is is weak and isolated. Um, and and this is this is just very, very disturbing. And we don't see a desire to get to the real masses. We see a desire to keep whatever anti-war apparatus exists attached to the uh, the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party is pro-war. The way they sell wars now is with liberal and social democratic rhetoric. Uh, for example, the International Criminal Court. Right. That's a big imperialist institution, the ICC. Every single, uh, you know, leader that has been tried in the International Criminal Court has been from one continent, from Africa. Uh, and the ICC, the International Criminal Court, is a big part of the of the liberal uh, you know, apparatus. It's a it's an, an, econ uh, an entity that's been created to justify U.S. military interventions and regime change operations. Uh, and it's sold with this kind of liberal humanitarian. We're doing this to protect women's rights. We're doing this to stop genocides in Africa. That's how they, they sell it. You know, and when the International Criminal Court started looking into, you know, the the U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan, all of a sudden uh, the response to it um, was the USA pulled out of it and put sanctions on it. And then the International Criminal Court backed down and, and wouldn't look into any U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan. And that that we live in a period where it is with with pseudo left, social democratic, social imperialist rhetoric, they sell the wars and the masses don't want to hear that. And the masses are against these wars. And so there needs to be a solid break uh, between social democracy and the so-called left and the anti-war movement. And, you know, February 19th, there's going to be a really important anti-war protest in Washington, D.C., and it's called by the People's Party, Nick Brana, and the Libertarian Party. Libertarian Party are not Marxists, but they're against these wars. 
Um, and we see the Answer Coalition and the Party for Socialism and Liberation uh, that have been stage managing the anti-war movement in Washington, D.C. They are trying to undermine this rally and they are calling it a, a fascist demonstration. They're saying no unity with the right, no unity with racists. Well, they're trying to actually get to the masses, whereas the anti-war movement under the leadership of, of these opportunists has continued to attach itself to the stop Trump uh, liberal mobilizations. Uh, and because of that, uh, because of that, it remains isolated from the masses at a time where there should be a huge anti-war movement in America. The anti-war movement in America should be massive because the masses are against these wars. But but social democracy, liberalism, the, the woke synthetic left, whatever you want to call it, uh, that is something that that is is very pro-war. And if you attach the anti-war movement to that, it's going to remain isolated and weak. So uh, this is what uh, this is the kind of weird situation we're facing here. And that quote about lower and deeper to the real masses becomes so, so important right now. We had something similar. Do you mind if I just carry on from that a little bit? Can you hear us now? I can hear you now. Okay, I'm just going to do a little anecdote related to what uh, Caleb was talking about the the um, anti-war movement in the USA. You know, something that I always look at in Britain, of course, uh, is what happened to our anti-war movement. So um, during the period of the run-up to the war against Iraq, the anti-war movement in Britain became huge. And the people who lead that movement uh, are basically kind of lash up between revisionists and Trotskyists, uh, who are very happy to work together in their in their fundamental platform of co-opt co all struggles and tie them to the Labour Party. It's actually the role they've played together for you know decades, uh, and they, despite being theoretically antithetical to one another, work very happily together because their practical program is the same program: tie every struggle to the Labour Party. And they successfully did that with the anti-war movement. Now, these the the, the official leaders of that movement have kind of gained their stature and rested on the laurels ever since of the fact that we had this huge demonstration in London on, I think it was 15th of February 2003, just before the Iraq war. What they never acknowledge or talk about is the fact that that demonstration was actually mobilized for by a section of the British ruling class which also didn't want the war. Now, if you remember that with the war in Iraq, it was one of those situations where the ruling class was divided in its policy. They all wanted to see the end of the regime of Saddam Hussein, uh, but they weren't agreed on the best way to do it. And the hawks won, the warmongers won, but the in Britain, we were divided really between the kind of big uh, uh, capital that's connected to banks, armaments, finance, very much American aligned, very much into the wars, and a, and, a, and a smaller section, which was more kind of Europhile, um, more aligned with the EU at that time. And they didn't want the war, just like France and Germany didn't want that war. And that's why that war didn't go under the name of the United Nations, but under the, what do they call it, Coalition of the Willing? Was that, <laughs> my memory served me right there. So the US-led coalition, again, a lot of people have forgotten this, but um, France and Germany weren't involved in that at that moment. There was a division between the imperialists about, about policy for getting rid of Saddam Hussein's government, which they all agreed they'd like to see go. Um, but we had a situation in the run-up to that war where because the ruling class was divided, there was a big section of the British mainstream corporate media which was anti-war. And one of our newspapers, uh, now I'm, I'm rubbish at this, Dad, it was, the, it was the Daily Mirror, right, Dad? that ran big headlines against the war, you know, pictures of Tony Blair saying blood on his hands. I mean, you know, really very strongly anti-war rhetoric and imagery coming from that newspaper. And they actually ran their presses overnight, the night before the demonstration, they advertised the demonstration. They ran their presses printing papers and placards for the demonstration and delivered them all around London for people to, to hold on the demonstration. So that it was really a section of the bourgeoisie really gave a massive, uh, impetus to British anti-war movement, which before then had been a kind of fringe affair, it became huge, really huge, a real mass movement. The branches in every town and, and suburb of London and town around the country um, were mass branches of you know, real cross-section of different types of people, really vibrant. Um, you know, a lot of people were mobilized and felt like it was a moment that they could come together and do something. Um, what happened? We had two million 
people on the streets of London on that day. I mean, it was the biggest demonstration our country has ever seen. Uh, and what was done with that power? I mean, that is definitely a power that can stop a war in a, in a particular moment, that particular balance of forces. You could do something with that, right? What did they do with it? They marched them all into Hyde Park and they put a bunch of liberal Democrats on the platform to tell them what? Well done. War isn't very nice. Well done. This was huge. Write to your MP. See you next time. And sent them home again. You know, the thing of what, what they could have told them and what they could have done with them to actually obstruct the war machine and stop the war from happening or from starting at that moment, you know, they physically could have used those people to obstruct the war machine and the political machine and the civil service machine in London and just say business is not going to happen until you listen to our demands. And, you know, that would have been a way to educate those people in their power and to actually meaningfully obstruct the war, right? They didn't do any such thing. And what happened? That was that, that demonstration and that movement was actually a way of turning workers cynical about themselves. So many people were put off politics, you know, for a decade or two decades because of their experience of being part of this big movement against the war where they knew that they were in the majority. They knew that the people were with them. They felt their power in the streets, but nothing was done with it. Nothing was achieved. Tony Blair knew he was safe to ignore them. He knew they didn't meaningfully intend to oppose the war. It was just a pressure valve. You know, while they were demonstrating the the the, the, the planes were flying the other direction off, you know, the bombers off to their bases in the Middle East. You know, so this question of what the anti-war movement actually consists of, what it demands, what it tries to achieve and how uh, is another one that's, as, as you said, you know, really important. And this idea that, you know, there's a, there's a, this kind of woke thing you were talking about where, you know, there's a politically correct, acceptable way to oppose war um, or, you know, oh, you can't stand next to this person or that person. You know, surely if you meaningfully intend to oppose war, you have to stand with and unify as many people as possible who also genuinely want to stop the war and find a way to use that force, right? Yeah. I mean, that is your job if you meaningfully meet, you know, if you actually mean what you say, that you want to stop the war and don't intend to just be a pressure valve for the system. Papal. Um, before I make the next point that I had in mind to do so, I think one of the differences between liberal-minded, you know, decent people who oppose the war and revolutionaries who oppose the war is precisely the point that Caleb raised earlier, revolutionary defeatism. They can all say we're against this war. It's like left-wingers in the Labour Party before the Iraq war started in 2003, they um, said in words they opposed the war. But once the war had started, they all were voting for it, saying we support our boys in, in the field. And you could oppose the war as long as you did not say that you wish for the defeat of the British army in Iraq. Even no chance of being defeated by the Iraqis, but the sentiment should be there to propagate that we want the defeat of these aggressors. They are waging a predatory imperialist war against people who have done nothing, nothing against us. I do not know much about the situation in the United States, but I do know about Britain. And that is actually one of the dividing lines between opportunists and non-opportunists. They can all voice their opposition to the war in words. But when it comes to opposing all those who are instrumental in, in this war, they will all at the end of the day say, support the Labour Party if the party of the working class. When it's a bloodthirsty imperialist party. So there's only one person who came close to saying they didn't want the British Army to win. And he was straight away kicked out of the, out of the Labour Party. That was George Galloway. He's never been able to get back into, the, into that party again. But oh, everybody else, Jeremy Corbyn, everyone else, they opposed the war, but once, as soon as the war had started, they all said they were backing our boys there, as though our boys were playing cricket and it was a good idea to support our team, right? The thing that I really want to discuss um, briefly is uh, opportunists. 
who distort Leninist teaching make no distinction between any war. They don't make any distinction between just and unjust wars. We are revolutionaries. We are not against war. For example, we're not against civil war of the proletariat against the bourgeoisie. And Lenin said, if you're opposed to the civil war, you have no right to call yourself revolutionary fighting for socialism. How are you ever going to achieve socialism without civil war against the bourgeoisie? We're not against it. We're on the side of the proletariat fighting against the bourgeoisie to overthrow it. We are in favor of people fighting against medievalism, you know, and, and medieval aristocracies like you have various excuses for states in the Middle East, you know, who are basically oil wells with, with, with flags. If people in those countries, unfortunately, they're not many people because the people who are there are from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Egypt, who are doing all the work. The locals simply clip coupons, depending on their hierarchy from the so-called ruling family down to the average person, you get your check. And that, 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 that's what you do. But we are in favor of the overthrow, just as during the period between 18, uh, 1789 and 1971. It was a period in Europe of the fight against feudalism, fight against medievalism. When the French Revolution was the most advanced one, it got rid of its, its, its feudal uh, aristocracy. It got rid of the monarchy. It even chopped off the head of, head of its king. And the whole of monarchist Europe united together to fight against the French Revolution in the same way as all the bourgeois and imperialist world united after the October Revolution in Russia against the October Revolution. Just as um, France or Paris had become the center for revolutionaries those days, Bolshevik Moscow became the center for revolutionaries everywhere. They converged on, on, on that because it was the motherland of the entire proletariat, not only in Russia, but, but all, all over the world. So we are in favor of wars against feudalism, which bring liberation, which bring progress to humanity. So that when the French armies were marching across the borders, fighting against various feudalists, we obviously had been, had we been alive, we would have been applauding them because they were putting an end to a horrible outmoded system. We are in favor of people fighting against imperialist wars, wars of national liberation. Vietnamese people, Korean people, Iraqi people, Lebanese people, um, you know, people everywhere, uh, who, uh, you know, the Palestinian people who are fighting for their liberation. And you support those wars because these are wars that progress humanity further forward. They don't take it back uh, to, to some past time. They are for the progress of humanity. Of course, people are killed. If you, you know, the old English saying, if you're frightened of breaking eggs, don't try and think of making an omelet. You know, you cannot, you cannot uh, be, be wanting national liberation for people. And national liberation is, and Marx and Engels stressed in their own ways. Like, for example, they were the, only people apart from a few chartists who followed them to actually describe the first Indian war of independence as a war of independence. Whereas the English simply put it out, this was a spoil rebellion by backward sounding people because they didn't want to bite a cartridge which had the fat of pig or cow because of the religious. Uh, no, religion didn't prevent him because during the time for two, three years when they rose, the same spoils were biting the same cartridges you know it didn't their religion didn't prevent them from doing so there, there were multiple causes which had actually got the indian people to accept the fact that the british were exploiters they were brigands they were thieves and they were torturers and torture was an instrument of financial policy whereby you know in land revenue was collected by torturing people who could not pay because of the famines, most of which were actually under the benign care of, of, of British, British, British colonialism. So we were against these national liberation wars because they advanced humanity. And what Lenin did was, in a very, very powerful way, said national liberation movements are not just peripheral. They're not just for people in Ireland. They're not just for people in Poland. 
They are for the whole world, hundreds of millions of people who are oppressed by our own bourgeoisie. And we don't even regard their wars as national liberation wars because we are European imperialist chauvinists. You should read it. His, his speeches, they're scathing about the opportunists in, in, in Europe. We support them because they actually move society forward. They are a help to the proletarian revolutionaries in the imperialist countries. As he, in his own inimitable way, succinctly put it, you know, the fight against imperialism would be a sham and a humbug unless the proletariat fighting for its emancipation in the imperialist countries was closely united with hundreds upon hundreds of millions of oppressed people in the colonies who are oppressed by, by capital. So there is a uh, thing. And then once the Soviet Union came into being, it was clear that if Soviet Union fought against any reactionary country, then you had to support the Soviet Union. There was no other way around. If socialist countries are fighting against reactionary countries, you support socialist countries, country, countries in, in, in those circumstances. And the touchstone of revolutionaries those days was, did you support the Soviet Union? Only the Trotskyite renegades and social democrats said the Soviet Union was using other people for its domestic, private purposes. No, as Stalin said, the success of the Russian Revolution was a success for the whole of the proletariat all around, around the world. And he put, put it his own words, what would happen to the proletariat of the USSR and of other countries if, God forbid, capitalism was to defeat the Bolshevik Revolution? Now, you can see the results of that after what happened in 1991, after the collapse of the USSR. Imperialism has really seized the, not only the people of oppressed countries, but also the proletariat of the European countries by the throat. You know, for the last 10, 15 years, there's been nothing but austerity. Wages either going down or stagnating. And in the end, people are fighting back against that, even in a very trade unionist way, but they're beginning to fight now. The scales are off of their eyes. They can see what's happening, that there is one system for the tiny minority and another, another for the majority. When you go into the grocery store and you suddenly find food prices over the last month have gone up by 13%. Well, when you've got a limited amount of money, it hurts, it pinches. You're constantly having to make, make do with less. And there comes a time, there's not much left. You have to decide whether you want to warm your house or whether you want to eat something or whether you want to eat two meals a day or only one, one, one meal a day, whatever. So we are not against just wars. We think these are the wars that take society forward. Whereas reactionary wars, imperialist wars, take society backwards. So, but Kautsky, according to Kautsky, there was no danger of war from imperialism. The danger only came either from the liberation movements in the Eastern countries or from autocratic regimes. And who were the autocratic regimes in Kautsky's words? Bolshevik Russia. So these were the sources of war. And therefore, you really had to avoid war. And after the Second World War, US imperialism stepped into the shoes of Hitler, Mussolini, and Tojo, i.e. the Japanese uh, uh, fascist, fascist, fascist leader. And it took over that policy of oppressing people all over the world, waging war against the people of the world. In the last 20, 30 years, I mean, since the Second World War, Britain, which is hardly regarded as an imperialist country by the Trotter revisionist fraternity, has intervened in the world, foreign countries, 93 times, of which 25 or 26 have been in the Middle East. And these are simply there to protect the interests of the British oil industry, which are dominated by Shell and British Petroleum, two major, major, major oil, oil, oil companies. Two of the what used to be seven sisters, but now there are five five sisters, if you, if you like. The number has been has been, has been much 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 reduced. So that's really what is happening, and we've got to be constantly saying we are on the side of a just war, and we were actually, literally speaking, literally speaking, the only party in Britain 
and possibly wider Europe, who were saying, we wanted the defeat of the British armies in, 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 in these wars. Of course, the ruling class ignored us because we're not important. We're not big enough. We could be ignored. But other groups, left-wing groups, ignored us as well because they thought, well, you know, we were basically off our rocker. You know, we didn't understand modern, modern politics because the modern politics is to be decent, to be well-mannered, you know, to just say, oh, well, all right, if you want to wage a war, carry on, but I don't think it's a good idea. No, that's not the way to oppose the war. As Caleb cited Lenin, go deeper down, down among the masses. I have no problem. As Lenin said in regard to the Irish rebellion, which took place before the October Revolution, it took place during the war in 1916. And I think it was, it was uh, Radek who described it as a putsch. And Lenin was scathing about him. He said, people who regard it as a putsch have a doctrinaire view, view of, of the proletarian revolution, revolution. They think one day there will be two armies gathered in a field. One will have on its banner the dictatorship of the proletariat and the other one the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. There'll be a fight and they'll be decided. He said, that's not the case. You know, all sorts of people join revolution, ideas, but all the same, they would be fighting for the advance of humanity, for a proletarian revolution. And Lenin was the only one who defended the Irish rebellion. He did not know Connolly, and Connolly, Connolly had never heard, heard of Lenin. It's a pity. But all the same, Connolly actually had the right ideas. He said, well, we should not send, send our brethren across the field to slaughter our class brethren, our enemies at home. Connolly understood that, you know, and that was very, very um, important indeed. In many ways, the Irish Revolution was almost a dress rehearsal for the October Revolution. Um, not just the 1905 Revolution and the February Revolution, but also the Irish Rebellion. That's something, some, something to be uh, to be learned from, from, from the Irish uh, Rebellion. And Lenin said, their tragedy was, they rose slightly too soon. But doesn't matter. Defeated our armies learn well. It's better to actually engage in fight and be defeated than actually never being engaged in fight just in case you're worried that in case you might be defeated. Every time you engage in a fight, the possibility of losing is there. And if you were worried about that, you will never be involved in any activity, let alone any re revolutionary activity. You wouldn't even get out of bed in case you have an accident, you fall down. You know, that is a topic very near to my own personal condition. So, you know, you, you got to struggle. That's why I find it so hard to get up every morning. Uh, I'm really conscious, although there were other topics I wanted to talk about in this discussion, that we're coming close to an hour and we probably should wrap it up. So um, maybe we'll have a chat, guys, about continuing this into a discussion about the drive to war that's happening now. Uh, maybe we could talk more about that next time. Uh, Caleb, would you want to wrap us up? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's really important to understand that anti-imperialism, and opposing this system of imperialism, global monopoly capitalism, and welcoming its defeat, that is the essence of what it means to be a revolutionary in our time. That's it. Uh, and that, you know, I mean, the Bolsheviks, let's not forget that they offered military support to the emir of Afghanistan in his struggle against the British imperialists. Even though the emir of Afghanistan was a feudal monarch who was very primitive and barbaric and and it was not the advanced bolshevik scientific socialist ideas by any means he was fighting the british empire so lenin was friendly with him they convened the congress of the peoples of the east in azerbaijan in baku uh and they were willing to support anybody who opposed the imperialists uh and that needs to be our orientation in this time it, and, and the problem now is that there is a big division in the American bourgeoisie. There is one faction of the ruling class uh, that, is, that is more pro-imperialist, uh, that is more in favor of foreign wars and interventions. And they are also the section that is more into social justice, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender stuff, etc. And there's another section of the ruling class in the United States that is, that is 
less social justice oriented, I guess you could put it. But at the same time, uh, they are also less in favor of interventionism. And if you are a genuine anti-imperialist and if you are a genuine Marxist, it is not your duty to defend the more pro-war section of the ruling class from the opposition uh, that is less, uh, less, less social justice oriented. It is your duty to welcome the defeat of the imperialist system. And that is what has been lost. And that there is this demand now on in all left spaces that we all prove that we're partisan to Joe Biden against Donald Trump. And we prove that we are loyal foot soldiers of the status quo uh, in defending the American status quo from the right wing opposition. And that is not the role that revolutionaries are supposed to play in the imperialist heartland. We're supposed to welcome the defeat of our own bourgeoisie. We're supposed to welcome uh, welcome their defeat and stand with any forces of resistance to Western capitalism and imperialism. And we're supposed to go lower and deeper to the real masses and build an anti-imperialist alliance. Um, and that is our duty. And that we, we are opposing the global system of imperialism. We are not we are not helping it and we're not uh, engaging and in, in picking which imperialists are better than the others. And uh, this understanding is largely missing and it, it's it's frightening to see. And that's why I feel like, you know, things like the Rage Against the War Machine demonstration coming up on February 19th in Washington, D.C. is so important because it's a break, uh, because as long as the anti-war movement continues to attach itself to this division within the ruling class, in which the the more left, if you will, current of the imperialists uh, is who you have to be attached to. As long as it uh, as long as it's attached to the the you know the establishment and defending the establishment against right wing opposition, uh, it's never going to be successful. The masses are against these wars, but they also don't like the uh, the the new left uh, you know woke or or you know social justice oriented makeover the imperialists are giving themselves. Yeah, absolutely um, right, Caleb. One sec, one sec, Dad. I just wanted to, to, to follow that with a very short um, anecdote because it's a horrible trick that's being played on people, right? And I remember this at the time of Donald Trump's election when he was standing against Hillary Clinton. Remember that? And my yeah. daughter at the time was in primary school in Britain. Right? It wasn't our election, but of course it's world news who's going to be president of the USA. And she had an assembly and came home to tell me how exciting it was that the USA might be about to elect its first woman president. Hmm. And I felt really like annoyed with the school that being forced into talking to a nine-year-old about Hillary Clinton's war crimes, because I just couldn't, didn't feel like I could let that just go by. Maybe I probably should have just let it go by. But, you know, it's horrific, isn't it? But they just, they just talked about it as if it's about, oh, she's a woman. And isn't that a brilliant historical moment? It's as if it's something progressive, if Hillary, Hillary Clinton's in the White House, without any discussion about what Hillary Clinton represents and what crimes she personally has been involved in. You know, and they, they're exactly the same with Joe Biden. You know, it's, it's kind of shocking. Um, that anybody gets away with that. But of course, when the media repeats and repeats and repeats things as if they're true, and none of the mainstream journalists who are paid so highly ever question these truths, then that creates the atmosphere in which the people who can see the truth feel like, am I the only one? And they sort of keep quiet, don't they? Harpal, sorry. I mean, I, I don't want to prolong this uh, um, discussion any further because everybody's short of time. I think there are a number of things that we haven't been able to discuss which relate to this very important topic. And I think the next um, topic should be a continuation of it because I want to discuss certainly two further questions, if not more. One is the question of, uh, um, of nuclear weapons because people think this has changed, changed, changed the whole, whole equation. And the other one is how um, it's not good to support uh, national liberation wars because they could spark a world war or even a nu nuclear war and all the rest of it. Um, you may think it's not sufficient to t uh, for one hour, but I think it would be um, all of us. Are, all of us are fairly um, valuable people, and we can we can keep it going for a while. That's that's why I'm saying I talk too much on this one. I'm going to talk too much on the next one as well because it's a topic that's close to my heart. Uh, I think that's a good idea. We will leave it there, uh, but next time we will talk about uh, those topics that Paul just said in relation to the current war drive in particular uh, and how we orient ourselves in relation to the war drive that's going on right now. 
So I'm sure there's plenty to talk about for an hour there. Thank you very much to everybody and see you next time. Thanks for listening to Proletarian Radio. We aim to bring you the best Marxist analysis on current affairs, revolutionary history, and theory. Do like, comment, subscribe, and share our content to help us reach the widest possible audience. We are a small organization with limited resources, and we need workers' support if we are to grow and fulfill our mission. If you are able to make a one-off or regular donation, no matter how small, please visit our website at thecommunists.org and register as a supporter.